This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Vladimir Putin. The name is synonymous with oppression, war, and a brutal rule that has led to the suppression of the Russian people. But who actually is Putin, and how has he risen to become one of the most powerful dictators of the 20th century? I'm your host, James Patton-Rogers, this is Warfare, and to take us through the political rise of Putin, from his wars in Chechnya to Georgia and Ukraine, I've invited Daniel Treisman onto the podcast. Daniel is Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the co-author of a new book, Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. Together, Daniel and I discuss Putin's special brand of dictatorial rule, how it was born, and how it's likely to end. Enjoy. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to Warfare, and thanks for taking the time to discuss the life, the meteoric rise, and the power plays of Vladimir Putin. And I guess we should start with the obvious. And it's a question that I've asked a few times on this podcast as part of our special Dictators mini-series here on warfare. Can we really class Putin as a dictator? He was Russia's second ever democratically elected president. But since that point, it, it does seem to be fairly obvious that Putin has descended into the ranks of being one of the world's most famous dictators. Do you define him as that in your work? Yes, and it's very interesting the trajectory he's been on since 1999 when he first became prime minister and then at the end of the year acting president. So as you said, he was elected reasonably democratically in 2000. He's been re-elected many times since then. And yet in a recent book with my co-author, Sergei Guriev, we very definitely do call him a dictator. What exactly does that mean? Over the course of the last 20 years, Putin has disassembled the elements of democracy that existed in Russia at the turn of the century. He started quite slowly. And in his early years, I don't think he had a very clear conception where he was headed and what exactly he wanted to do. There were various paths open and he was proceeding experimentally, I think. He was much more open to the West interested in possible cooperation on, on many issues, and not yet quite so cynical about the motives of the West. But over time, he changed his style of operating to a different model, I would say, of governance, which in the book with Sergei Gudiev, we call spin dictatorship. Now, that's often a type of rule that results from backsliding within a democracy, but it's no longer really democratic at all. What it consists of is imitating democracy, pretending to be democratic, pretending to be a competent, effective, popular leader, but manipulating information, controlling the media, often covertly, and marginalizing opposition through the use of the state, through the use of all sorts of tricks, so that eventually you're the only politician that people see in front of them they don't believe there's any alternative, even if they're not overjoyed with your performance in office, they think you're better than any conceivable alternative. And Putin really helped design this model of spin dictatorship. We talk in the book about various other leaders who were doing this simultaneously, people like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, 
And even before them, the leaders of Singapore had become very proficient at managing society in a way which looked ostensibly more or less democratic, but in fact embodied a very high level of central control and really made it impossible to oppose the incumbents effectively. Now, spin dictatorship is a big change from the models of authoritarian rule that we saw in the 20th century predominantly. So in the middle of the 20th century, we saw regimes that used absolutely massive levels of violence, really brutal repression, locking people up for decades, hundreds of thousands or millions of political prisoners, massive use of political executions, political killings. We saw this, of course, in, in the classic totalitarian dictators like uh, Stalin, Hitler, uh, Mao, but even in dictatorships in Africa or in Latin America, we saw very large numbers of deaths and political imprisonments. Spin dictatorship uses as little violence as possible because spin dictators realize that in a more modern, internationally connected world with very active, sophisticated media, with highly educated populations, uh, violence is really unpopular and you can get what you want more effectively uh, at lower cost by pretending to be democratic and just behind the scenes manipulating so that you don't face any real opposition. I think there's been this progression from the very overt, often ideological, violent types of dictatorship towards this more sophisticated, smoother, you could say, media-oriented style of controlling all the levers of power. And so we see Putin really going through this progression in the 2000s, developing this kind of system where there's a parliament, where there are ostensible opposition parties in the parliament, but which is really controlled from the Kremlin through various kinds of bribes, pressures, blackmail, and central coordination, where there's a small, genuinely independent media. So the mass media, the TV is controlled by the Kremlin, but some independent liberal media is allowed because Putin realizes it's not a threat to him. So long as its audience is a few hundred thousand at most, it's not a threat. And it actually makes him look more convincing as this uh, pretend Democrat. And it's a system in which basically gradually over the first, his first years in power, all the levers of control are centralized in what he calls this power vertical. While still most people in Russia and many people around the world view this as a kind of democracy, perhaps not a perfect democracy, but then what is a perfect democracy? When do we see those? And this continues for a long time. But at a certain point, he starts going down a different path. He starts using more overt repression, still quite sparingly compared to 20th century dictators, but he starts really criminalizing opposition. He cracks down on the independent media that he's tolerated until then. He starts really working hard to control the internet, to monitor, to censor the internet. Up until about 2012, the regime had really been very laid back about internet. Putin in, the, in his first or second, second term said something like, who cares about the internet? 50% of it is porn. Uh, they didn't appreciate that this was going to become very politically significant. Uh, but then they changed that. And after he comes back to the presidency in 2012, and then especially after the invasion of Crimea in 2014, they start imposing a more heavy-handed style of propaganda on state TV. They start really pushing the opposition into the corner and often abroad. And over time, it gets harsher and harsher to the point where in 2022, in February, he invades Ukraine. And along with that, the last elements of this remaining independent liberal civil society are basically just stomped out. And the whole opposition 
ends up either in jail or abroad. So we see that progression of Putin, and we would categorize that by saying he's moved from being what we call a spin dictator to being one of the old-style fear dictators, whose basic strategy is to intimidate. Now, he still hasn't put hundreds of thousands of people in prison. He hasn't engaged in in mass executions or, or killings. Sadly, there is room for this to get even harsher. But at this point, it's pretty clear that he's sending the message, both at home and abroad, that you should be scared. He's tough, and he's not going to tolerate threats to his power at all. And so what drives this sliding scale from a pseudo-democracy, a spin dictator, over through to a, a more traditional, overt, brutal dictatorship? What is it that's motivating Putin? Is it just the fact that he's merely consolidating his power? He's somebody who is believing his own rhetoric. He's getting more extreme with those around him. He's surrounded by yes-men who believe everything that he's saying, or at least support and reinforce his decisions? Or are there external factors that are pushing Putin towards these more extreme routes? Are these economic factors? Is this a continued resistance from the West? Are, are we to part, be partly to blame for this continued extremism of Putin? What is it that's driving him down this path? And as you say, an increasingly worrying path that might lead to even more violence in the future. I think there are several things. First of all, it gets much harder to be a spin dictator in Russia for several reasons. That's part of it. And partly at a certain point, I think he loses faith. He loses confidence that he can continue to control using this model that he'd been developing up until then. To start with, the reasons why it got harder to operate by spin in Russia. First of all, the economy did worse, right? Up until 2008, Russia has... 7% a year growth in real incomes, very strong recovery from the dismal economic performance of the 1990s, the oil price is going up, of course, and the Russian economy is booming, the middle class is expanding, people are getting this new kind of European lifestyle as they perceive it. And so Putin is very popular for that reason in those first eight years. But then we get the global financial crisis. Russia survives, but it's a shock to Putin and to the economic managers. And really, since the global financial crisis, things have been harder economically around the world, but definitely including in Russia. And some of the early decisions that Putin made the, to tolerate corruption in his entourage, in fact, to create a system in which his close associates could take over businesses and expropriate entrepreneurs, that has a medium-term impact, decreasing investment and creating uncertainty. So the economy is worse. That's one problem. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to change his model. I think at the same time, he's going through a psychological evolution. So he starts out, as I said, in the early 2000s, not completely clear which direction he's going to go in interested in these negotiations, some cooperation with the West. He even talks in the very early days about the possibility of joining NATO and various... He's reaching out to Bush, to the European leaders in 2000, 2001. And we often forget this, don't we, Daniel? There's, there's this thawing in, the, in that moment of the, the new millennium where you have Putin on a world stage meeting with Clinton, heading over to China... He's very much lapping up the attention of, of what many people see as, as a new Russia in a post-Cold War world that's recovering and coming in from the cold. Like you say, there are these discussions about Russia joining NATO, although they don't get the seat at the table that they want. And so this starts to fade to the sides. And of course, when it comes to 9-11, Putin sees this as a moment to try and couple up with Bush. The first person to message Bush, uh, a message of condolence is, is Putin and to offer the full support of Russia in Afghanistan. There is this quite interesting moment, but it, it all fades away. That's right. And we should remember, he even stands up to his own communists to support the US, the Western operation in Afghanistan. So he allows overflight of supplies, of planes taking supplies to Afghanistan over Russian, through Russian airspace 
even as communists are protesting against this in Russia. So there's that element. Now, that's part of the situation. And he's exploring there. And quite quickly, a series of events begins, which cause him to become much more cynical about the West. I wouldn't say that he wasn't at all cynical to begin with, but it accentuates his cynicism. He starts to really feel that the West is hypocritical, that all this talk about international law is just a charade, that it doesn't really mean it. When it wants to go bomb somewhere like Iraq, it just goes and bombs, and eventually in Libya too. He's extremely angry about 2011, the military operation in Libya, which overthrows Gaddafi. So he sees this Western hypocrisy, and over time, he becomes more and more convinced that the West is completely cynical, and also that the West is hostile towards his regime and determined to undermine his regime. Now, one aspect of this is that in the beginning, I would say he, he has different groups in his regime among his Kremlin advisors. You can divide these into three groups, the economic liberals. These are old friends and colleagues, many from St. Petersburg, like Alexei Kudrin, who becomes finance minister, Roman Greff, who's minister of economics initially, then goes to head Spearbank. So he has these, they're not internationally trained, but they're in touch with international economic circles. They're quite sophisticated. They understand market economics more than most people in Russia. And they're pressing for liberal economic reforms. And they're telling Putin that corruption is going to undermine the performance of the Russian economy and so on. So he has that group, the economic liberals. Then he has cynical political operators in Russia. They're called political technologists. They're people like Vladislav Surkov, Gleb Pavlovsky. These are somewhat shady characters. They're the people who go and tell the parliament, okay, you can pretend to debate, but the decisions are going to be really made in the Kremlin. Okay, you can pretend to be an opposition party, but we will see you once a month. And if you don't do what we say, you won't get paid or even worse stuff will happen. And they're the ones who deal with the media, that tell the network news stations what to emphasize, what to downplay, what to completely ignore. So that political operatives. And then the third group is security service professionals, people he's known from his own security service time in the KGB, who are now in the FSB. They're people he often has worked with in the past, but they're people with a very different professional formation, very different view of the world. And among those, he gravitates towards those who have a very conspiratorial, cynical view of the West and how things happen. A view in which basically the CIA is incredibly powerful and efficient and a huge threat to Russia. The CIA is behind all sorts of things. And that's the third group. Now, early on, they balance each other. And Putin deliberately sets up a kind of balance, listening to the economists more on economic policy, to the security people on security issues. But remember, in those first eight years, he doesn't have major political problems. He's extremely popular. There are protests by opposition, but they're not very significant. Over time, he loses faith in the first two groups. So I think a key moment when he starts to lose faith in the economic liberals is over the issue of the imprisonment of the oligarch Mikhail Khodorkovsky. So in 2003, Khodorkovsky, he's this billionaire who controls, who owns this major oil company, Yukos, and he's basically buying support in the parliament to oppose taxation for oil sector. At a meeting with Putin, he raises the issue of corruption in a deal that's a little bit too close to home for Putin. And a decision is made to go after Khodorkovsky, to prosecute him for alleged tax fraud, to put him in jail and basically take away his company. The economic liberals at this time are saying, if you do stuff like that, it's going to undermine investor confidence. Our international investors are going to flee Russia. He does it, the stock market soars. I think it doubles in the next two years, or at least there's a massive increase in investment in Russia because other things are positive. The oil price is rising very fast. And so it's a high risk investment, but still the money floods in. So I think that, and then continuing to see the economy doing well, even as his associates are expropriating businesses, 
engaging in various kinds of corruption. I think that leads him to distrust the voices of the liberal economists, and they're gradually marginalized, pushed aside. It makes him believe the untrue stories that his security service friends are telling him about the disloyalty of these economic advisors. I'm sure they're telling him that they're really working for the West. They have their villas abroad, their personal connections and so on. And so he shouldn't trust them. Anyway, they get marginalized. The second group, Pavlovsky, Surkov, the political operatives, I think what does it for them is 2011-2012, when Putin is coming back to the Kremlin. He announces it. He thinks it's going to be reasonably popular. In fact, it sets off this wave of mass protests, ostensibly about blatant falsification in the elections in Moscow. But in part, it's directed against him. People are calling for Putin to resign. And he gets these mass protests and Surkov and Pavlovsky, who've been managing things, can't deal with it, or at least that's how he sees it. So he moves to somewhat harsher people. And over the next few years, basically, he loses faith that these political managers really have what it takes to manage this increasingly mobilized Russian society. And I should say that another part of this that is making it harder to control Russian society is that it continues to modernize. So the internet really takes off. There's really no internet, no social networks in Russia before about 2005. By Putin's third term in office, YouTube is huge in Russia. And you have people like Alexei Navalny, the agitator, the opposition leader, who's making these incredibly powerful videos about official corruption, which are getting millions of views. And Navalny shows that he's able to stage demonstrations. So Putin initially clamps down on these 2011-2012 demonstrations, and gradually they stop during the course of a year or two. But then Navalny's able to, first of all, he runs for mayor in Moscow. He gets 27% of the vote, which is way more than anybody anticipated. And he continues to issue these videos, embarrassing top leaders, showing their palaces, showing their yachts, showing their corruption. And so 2017, there are these big demonstrations throughout the country now in support of Navalny against, at that point, Medvedev, because his corruption had been publicized in a video. And then more demonstrations continue, 2019, 2020. So Putin is really, at that point, I think, turning to the security services and saying, look, political operatives don't have this. What should I do? And they recommend harsher measures, tougher policing, more arrests at demonstrations. He basically hands over control of the streets to the security services. He's gone through that evolution. It's got harder and harder to manage Russian society just through the media, in part because the economy's worse, in part because Russian society's got even more highly educated, more sophisticated with communications. It's linked by social networks now and is used to the internet. He's lost faith in the economists. He's lost faith in, in his political operatives. And he's come to rely on the security services. Then he starts to listen to them more and more. And he doesn't hear the discordant voices. In the past, these other groups could point him in different directions, point out consequences of harsher actions. He's not listening to them anymore. So basically, he's listening to people with attitudes that match his own, which are conspiratorial, which are very cynical, and which reinforce his own instincts, which are sliding more and more to the far right, to the sense of the need for Russia to be great, to be respected in the world. This goes along, of course, with the rebuilding of the Russian armed forces, increase in economic power, and so on. He's in this echo chamber of his close associates, and the situation has changed Completely. It's a much harsher situation. And then in COVID, he's almost completely isolated. He's talking to a few friends who have these very nationalist, imperialist views. And basically, this somehow leads to him going off the deep end and making the decision to invade Ukraine, which clearly caught most of his administration by surprise. He'd been preparing the military measures that were necessary. But almost everybody, I think, had thought he was bluffing. 
And then it turns out he's not. Well, let's follow that logic there, because it's interesting to think. Putin is getting more extreme himself over the years, and then he's being surrounded by those who echo his extreme beliefs, but also those that he's familiar with from his own KGB background. I'm fascinated by the idea that he thinks that the CIA are responsible for everything, especially as this is somebody who is responsible for ordering the poisoning, the murder of nationals on, on, on foreign soil. So it's almost self-reflective that he thinks that the CIA have a quite large arm in his country. But he's almost creating a self-fulfilling prophecy by getting more extreme, replacing those around him with more extreme people. And then you lead to this point where, of course, naturally, you must need to go to war in order to consolidate your power. But is there also something more cynical here? Because we know that when leaders, especially dictators, are under extreme pressure, when you launch an extreme emergency, when you launch a war, you start to enact these special measures that mean you can really control every aspect of life in Russia. So is this about this idea of external threats? Or is this about him holding on to his regime and consolidating his power? I don't think he was really under domestic threat at all in 2021, Okay, early 2022. And also, I don't think he would have felt it was necessary to go to war in order to clamp down harder at home. So I don't think that was really it. Was it that he really thought that the US was about to invade, that Ukraine was on the point of starting a war with US backing. Again, I find it very hard to believe that, though I wouldn't rule anything out because we simply have no access to his inner thoughts. I think the version that's most convincing to me is that he really became bound up in this grandiose view of his historical destiny. And he really came not to feel constrained by the force of gravity or the limits of the Russian armed forces or all these other aspects of the real physical world. He gave these speeches, he published this long historical essay, and the extent to which he seems personally angry about these details of what he thinks happened 300 years ago, it seems unlikely to me that he would have thought it necessary to fake that if he didn't really feel this. The, the simplest explanation. So, so what did happen 300 years ago that set Russia and indeed Putin on this path? It's a long series of alleged fictional betrayals by the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians and the Russians and the Belarusians are really one people, but evil forces have been continually conspiring to prevent them being united. There's Bogdan Khmelnytsky in the 17th century, Mazepa shortly afterwards. There's this whole series of incidents in Russia-Ukrainian history that have been turned by Russian historians into reasons to feel angry hundreds of years later. There's a great book about this that just came out by Mikhail Zigar on the historical roots of Putin's thinking right now. And of course, it's not about history. It's about a particular, very skewed view of things which feels right to Putin because he starts with that resentment. I should emphasize, it seems to me that's quite different from the Putin in the early 2000s. I think he was much more realistic about Ukraine then. He may have partly, it's just part of Russian culture to have that kind of view of how things went down with Ukraine or with what he would say people now call Ukraine in the old days. But it wasn't central to his thinking. Now it's really taken over. Uh, at least that's that's how it seems. That's the simplest explanation I can come up with for what's happening now. It's not really about the sense of threat, although I think he probably does exaggerate that, and that's an element. I think, judging by everything we've seen him say, I do believe that he feels that there's no way of compromising and really cooperating with the West. The West is out to get him, and that will never change. The most you can do is resist contain, defend by attacking. I think that's his view. But in the past, he was much more cautious. He started out very cautious in foreign affairs, but then really starting with 2008, the war in Georgia, he started taking bigger risks. Hello. 
host of Dan Snow's History Hit podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes all sorts of versatile any-weather staples. Hoodies, jackets, and more. Whether you're buying a gift or stocking your closet, you'll find just what you need. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code AnyStyle24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, promo code AnyStyle24. I was going to say, he's not shy for having violent military crackdowns. We think very early on he was defending Russian actions in Chechnya. And then, of course, we have to talk about Georgia 2008. For you, is it Chechnya or or Georgia that really should have been an eye-opener for the West, or perhaps both, of the true Putin, the real Putin, and the fact that he is not shy to use military force? On Chechnya, I think he represented a whole side of Russian public opinion. And he was responding to an obviously real problem. There was a a huge security issue at the border. The fact that that Shamil Basayev could take his forces into Dagestan, that Chechen terrorists could kidnap people in the south of Russia, that was a real issue. Now, they chose the stupidest way to deal with that, in my view, It was a real threat. Putin, both genuinely and as somebody who cared about public opinion, could have felt that a real strong military response was called for at that point. What we do learn from the Chechnya war itself is that he has absolutely no, he absolutely doesn't care about human lives, about casualties, about deaths of innocence. Uh, He's ready to use very tough and brutal methods. That we see there, and that's consistent. Now, there's one big remaining uncertainty question mark, which is what happened to those apartment blocks that blew up. And it's possible. I remain agnostic on that. Some people have said that there is evidence that the FSB was in some way involved in the blowing up of apartment buildings in late 1999. There were certainly many strange and intriguing details that we know about from them, I haven't seen conclusive evidence of anything. If the FSB was directly involved, then of course that would relate to stuff that comes later. But as political scientists, as historians, we live with a situation where we can't know all the facts. So just judging by what I think we do know, the way Putin fought the war in Chechnya does not necessarily tell, tell us or give any indication that it's going to develop the way it did. Georgia, too. I may have underestimated the significance of that at the time, but it was, on the Russian side, a very clear response to unjustified aggression by Saakashvili. Saakashvili started by ordering 
missile strikes into Tsukinvali, the capital of South Ossetia, strikes that, that killed civilians and that I believe hit Russian peacekeepers, the compound and may have injured or even killed a Russian peacekeeper. What was happening before then, the Russian armed forces were trying really hard to provoke the Georgians with various kinds of abuses and operations. That was the background, but it started when Saakashvili, when the Georgian troops shelled a civilian area in a city that they viewed as being part of Georgia. And then the Russians went in, of course, was that justified under international law? No. But you could see it as not necessarily representative of something that Putin was going to always do or a harbinger of his reactions in future crises because it was a, a kind of clear-cut situation of unjustified aggression within Georgia, of course, but an action by the Georgian leadership. Moving forward then, Crimea, I think, should tell us we have to be, first of all, we have to stop predicting that he won't do things that seem to us to be irrational. We have to take seriously any intelligence we get. And we saw before the 2022 invasion, the US intelligence services really took that on board and were publishing information that suggested there was going to be a major invasion at a time when that seemed absolutely crazy to just about everybody. I think Crimea was an indicator that Putin would, Putin could do just about anything, but there was also enough evidence involved in the way that played out that he would evaluate things in terms of costs and benefits still, that he wouldn't necessarily escalate beyond his capacity at a certain point. With that very skeptical anti-West mindset that is reinforced by those around him from the SFB, former KGB. We've spoken about that a lot in this podcast, this, this idea that it's his, his background of, of being in the KGB, the Foreign Intelligence Service. It's almost like that's his comfort zone. And at a time when he comes under great pressure, that's where he goes back to. That's what he knows. And it reinforces his view of the world. And like you say, what has happened to Russia? Is it that KGB past and Putin's much longer history, not from 1999, 2000, when he's this canny political mover. But if we go further back to the 80s and into the 70s, he joins the KGB in 75, I think. Is that right? Is it that period of his history that we should look into in order to try and understand the Putin that is in power today? Well, at a very simple level, of course, we should look at people's biographies. It's all relevant. But at a deeper level, people change. And it's too easy to just look back and find those moments which are consistent with what happened later and to exaggerate the determinism of history. I think Putin could have gone down many different paths. And as I was saying at the beginning, it looked like he had paths which would have emphasized any of those three groups of advisors. So you could say in line with those three groups of advisors, he had different possible ways of taking Russia towards a regime that's based on conservative politics and macroeconomically orthodox liberal free market economy. He had a path of just spin dictatorship and staying with spin dictatorship, managing political problems, pseudo-democracy, but not much violence. And he also had an option of more overt repression and international conflict. He could have had more overt repression without international conflict, but overt repression with international conflict is the most extreme option. That was one of the paths. And perhaps early on, I underestimated the odds of him ending up on that path, but it was clearly possible, but the others were as well. I never find it convincing when somebody reaches back and, and finds something somebody said or did 20 years before and says, that explains it. Because there are so many other things going on which could pull in a different direction and which would seem like signs, that confirmatory evidence, if he had actually gone down some other path. I also don't find it convincing when people reach back and they say, he read this book and that explains it all. Some people have really emphasized the fact that he's quoted 
certain Russian philosophers, nationalist Russian philosophers in the past, it seems to me more that his thinking develops, it develops along with his reading, but his reading is also chosen because his tastes and interests and view of the world are developing in a certain direction. No, I, I agree. I don't think we can go back to the fact that he's born in 1952. He's born under the rule of Stalin. So he must end up being a, a Stalinistic dictator or the fact that he's moving through the, the KGB and he's, he's serving in East Germany. He sees on, on, on the front lines exactly the, the enemies of, of, of the Soviet Union and how it all goes wrong. I, I agree there aren't these kind of key points, these de deterministic ends that kind of explain everything that has happened in Russia or during Putin's rule. I, but I like the way you've explained it. There's almost these turning points, these forks in the road. There's so many different futures under Putin that Russia could have had. But instead, we start to see this consolidation down towards a more extreme path. And, and what does this tell us about the future, Daniel? What are we going to see in terms of the next steps, if it's possible to look to the future, of what Putinism is going to bring to Russia and to the world? I don't think he can liberalize. I don't think he can go back. Unfortunately, what's very likely to happen is continued attempts to use repression. I think, so either he succeeds in that and he's, he manages to reconsolidate after the war, he manages to get through this war, reconsolidates power, and then it's a very harsh authoritarian regime, probably even worse than what we currently see, or he fails to reconsolidate. And I think if we're thinking about how does this regime end, again, I can't rule anything out. It's possible that he could decide in 2024 that somebody else running for president from his team would be more successful, would be a better move than to have him run again. Do we have an idea who that might be? Are we talking about someone like Sergei Shogu or back to Medvedev? For so many years, Russia experts have been throwing names out there. And until we're very close to the actual time, I don't think we'll know who the candidates are, let alone who the winner is. So I could talk about these people, but I don't think it's, it doesn't mean anything at this point. You're not, you're not, you're not putting your money on anyone at this moment in yeah. time. And I suppose it, it depends on how the war in Ukraine is going to go as well. Do you think that he does want peace? You say how he navigates this war is going to depend on kind of what happens afterwards. China seems to think that, that Putin doesn't want peace anymore. He rejects their 12-point peace plan. You can see that Xi is frustrated. Is, this, is the war not helping Putin at the moment? In the very short run, wars do help dictators. They make them more secure, enables them to rally the population, at least for a while. It enables them to shake up any elite that might have been disloyal. It forces people to do things which reveal how loyal they are. The research is, is pretty clear that dictators who enter a war are more secure, at least as long as the war goes on. Uh, then it depends on how the war ends. But it's not, if you lose a war, you're immediately uh, thrown out. It's still about a 50-50 odds of survival for a dictator who's just lost a war. Okay, does Putin want peace? No, of course not. He wouldn't have started the war if he wanted peace. He wants victory, but he doesn't think the war can end. If he really believes this idea that it's not just Ukraine, it's the West, he's fighting again. I think he doesn't believe that the West will ever really stop and he's not going to really stop. So basically, there can be an armistice, there can be a breathing space that will be called peace, but he'll continue through other channels, through other means, and building up, uh, rebuilding. So what will determine what happens, I think, is the capacities of the Russian side. There could come a point where he feels it's absolutely essential to, to freeze things temporarily while he rebuilds, or the system could break down. And so if we're thinking about how this could end, assuming he doesn't choose to step down for some tactical reason, I think the only other option that's very convincing, some people think have talked about a coup, a faction in the military or the security services taking over. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to do. And it seems pretty unlikely. What seems more likely to me, although still at this point, not very likely, is a a meltdown of the system in the sense that it's highly centralized. 
Putin personally has to make the key decisions. And a country at war with a struggling economy and 11 time zones is just a bed of crises, right? So different issues, different crises, different political situations spontaneously erupt all over the place, and somebody has to deal with them. Ultimately, that somebody is Putin. He can't do everything at once. And when you're dealing with issues, failures on the front, questions of loyalty somewhere, maybe in the rear, a political crisis in a factory town where they haven't been paid, some terrorist attack internally, you have all that at once, and you have to make decisions. The odds of making a mistake go up. Once you make one mistake, that can lead to additional mistakes. It complicates things further. So I can imagine this leading to a situation where he's just not coping. And then others within the system try to manage parts of it. And maybe they get into conflict. They're already getting into conflict. We saw an early part of this in the Prigozhin mutiny. Things are clearly not completely stable when you have a head of a mercenary group, first of all, taking on the defense minister and the head of the armed forces, and then being able to march to 120 miles from, from Moscow. And then being listened to in order for there to be changes to be made in the Russian armed forces. It had a, a very clear demonstrated impact. It did. And it led, and the outcome was bewildering to most watchers that he wasn't really punished. So that suggests that there is this really unstable situation internally. And that could be the beginning of this kind of a meltdown. I'm not predicting it. I'm not saying it's going to happen very quickly. But clearly it's hard. And, and Putin was very slow, based on the reporting, to react uh, to that when it happened. There's so many moving parts. The whole thing could operate much less well, leading to a process of kind of disintegration where many options which don't seem at all plausible at the moment could suddenly emerge. How that would end exactly is hard to say, but it could lead to destabilization and then eventually Putin leaving in one way or another and somebody else taking over. Now, would that lead to an end of the war and better relations with the West? Maybe not initially. It might be a hardline faction, but many of the intelligent people who could take over in that situation would decide that it was urgent to get some breathing space to consolidate. And for that, you need at least some kind of agreement. You need to freeze things or stop things completely in Ukraine and try to use the fact that you've got a new face at the head of the regime to improve relations with the West. So that's possible. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. From analysing Putin, you've been able to explain to us how dictators consolidate power, but also how a dictatorship relates to the deployment of warfare as a political mechanism and how that continues to, to churn on brutally today. And like you say, we have this path, you have this, this meltdown of, of, of Putin and Putinism that, that might bring an end to the war, or we have a continuation of this war to the point where perhaps we will see realistically a, a partition of, of Ukraine being the only way to have some sort of armistice or, or, or short-lived peace while Putin makes his next decisions. Either way, the future doesn't look calm, it doesn't look peaceful, and it looks like future turmoil will certainly be the defining feature of a future Russia. And you have to tell us, Daniel, where can we read more about this? Where can we read more about your work on dictators? This book that I published last year with Sergei Guriev is called Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. It's out now in, I think, 13 languages. So if you don't want to read it in English, you can try Slovak or Portuguese. It's available from Amazon or other bookstores. I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs last September about this scenario of meltdowns. So if anybody wants to, to see how I sketched out that idea, it's there in Foreign Affairs from September. There you go. All our listeners around the world, you can not only get a copy of the book, but you can get it in your own language as well, which is always what we like to hear. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, 
on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes all sorts of versatile any-weather staples, hoodies, jackets, and more. Whether you're buying a gift or stocking your closet, you'll find just what you need. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code ANYSTYLE24. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.